This is a crowd podcast. Mr. President, yeah. you, you said a couple of weeks ago that you didn't really see much prospect at the time for a diplomatic solution. Has that changed? Do you see more hope now? Well, I don't particularly see more hope now because it's so clear what the world is demanding of Saddam Hussein. Clearly, it, the objectives remain the same. Get out of Kuwait and restore the rightful leaders to their place. Iraq has ordered the closure of all remaining foreign embassies in Kuwait including the American Embassy. In Brazen, this is the secret history of Flight 149 with me, Stephen Davis. The Iraqi authorities have cut off electricity and water to our embassy, among others. This is the story behind how and why an ordinary passenger plane was allowed to land in a war zone in occupied Kuwait, and what became of those taken as hostages. In this episode, we'll be going behind the scenes at the American Embassy, as it found itself under siege, and hearing about the devastating dilemma that the human shields were faced with when Saddam Hussein made a snap decision about their fate. Earlier in the series, we heard how B. George and Deborah Saloom, an American couple travelling with their son Preston, had hijacked a bus to get themselves to the American embassy. Officials had initially warned them not to come, saying the embassy wasn't equipped to look after them. But once it became clear all Westerners were being arrested by the Iraqi army, George and Deborah had to take drastic action to make it to the embassy gates. But the relief was short-lived. When we first arrived in the American embassy, it was an environment of chaos. And as we were told many times, the American embassies overseas are not fit or not actually suited or designed to house uh, Americans or for protection. Their responsibility is basically diplomatic relations and to support the commercial entities of the United States. So when we arrived, there were a lot of, you know, uh, people slept uh, in on cots or in tents. There was a lot of refrigerators that had been put into the embassy to have food. Eventually, of course, the power was cut, and so that was a problem with all the food having to be disposed of and those type of things. It was clear to Deborah that the embassy wasn't going to be the sanctuary of safety they'd hoped for. It was walled, but at a couple of points in the embassy, the wall was low. Um, I'm five feet tall, and the wall was no more than five feet tall, so someone could have scaled it easily. I knew that, you know, we were in a very dangerous position. Supplies were running dangerously short. There were fears the Iraqis might storm the embassy. More and more staff were being evacuated. We had been in the embassy for a while, and the um, people who were attached to the embassy, they had all left and evacuated to Iraq. The Marines that were assigned to the embassy had left because they said uh, there was no more Kuwait. It was part of Iraq. So they had them evacuate to uh, Baghdad. The only people that were there were civilians and a core group of diplomats. Unfortunately, that the day that they all, the Marines left, no one volunteered to take over uh, the security component. And so I took responsibility 
for that with my son. That was a 24-hour basis. We were still having communications with the State Department. After originally being told not to come at all, George had now been given a position of real responsibility, a job he never thought he'd find himself doing. Over a period of time, the power was cut, but we were able to put a plan together by running the diesel engine backup power to keep the satellite running so that by doing that, we're able to keep communications open to uh, the State Department. But again, no one was willing to take care of the security component of that. So me and my son pretty much took turns 24 hours. That was fine until the power was completely cut off and then we lost the day-to-day operational security components, cameras, lights, and electronic gates and all those type of things outside. We lost all that. And after that, what we had to do is post individuals in the, the, the two locations of entrance, knowing that if the Iraqis were trying to come into the American embassy, we needed to have a certain amount of time to be able to alert uh, the ambassador and the, the other diplomats so that they could actually take care of destroying all the equipment and the paperwork and all that stuff. But that was quite extraordinary, though, if you think about it. You're, you're an American citizen in your own embassy. The, the people who are supposed to be guarding the embassy are gone, and, and you're taking on responsibilities that you, you never dreamed you would have to take. Well, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, I'm an American citizen, and will always be. And I was going to do whatever I needed to do to, uh, you know, what happened was the uh, Iraqi government stated that there is no need to have an American embassy in Kuwait. And that uh, Kuwait is the 19th province of Iraq. You already have an embassy uh, in Baghdad. You don't need to have uh, an embassy in Kuwait. But the thought process was that if we, in fact, shut down the Kuwait embassy, then uh, we would be acknowledging Saddam's right to uh, overtake uh, and to invade Kuwait. And that was something that I was not or any other people there were willing to accept. Each of us would wind up having some little ritual uh, that we would do to pass the time and to stay strong, emotionally strong. And Every day there was a bench that was near the American flag on the embassy grounds and I would go early in the morning when it was cool and sit there and reflect on what it meant to be free and live in our democracy and what that meant to me um, and to pray. And um, as I prayed, um, one particular time I very much felt the Spirit and felt the words come into my mind, be still and know that I'm God. And I have to say that I would continually hang on to that thought. Meanwhile, on the other side of the city, at the British Embassy, Tony Pace had issues of his own. We did have a big problem with the hundred or more women and children 
of the officers and NCOs of our military training team with the Kuwait Armed Forces. All the officers and NCOs had been rounded up and taken off to Baghdad, basically as prisoners of war, because they were training an enemy army in the Iraqi sites. So my ambassador asked me to lead a convoy out of Kuwait to Baghdad, and this I did. I had 105 women and children, and that was that. Did it all go to plan? No, it didn't go smoothly. I had 28 cars. Seven of them got lost very early on, but we did find them again at the Iraqi border. It was very, very hot. We were in danger of running out of water. We had about two hours sleep uh, outside a, a hospital on the way. I slept under a statue of Saddam. Well, I didn't sleep, I just lay there for a couple of hours. Uh, and then we were on our way again. And when we got to the outskirts of Baghdad, where I had been assured we would be met by members of the Baghdad embassy, nobody was there to meet us, just a, a large group of Iraqi thugs who were only interested in one thing, which was basically finding out who the diplomats were and who were non-diplomatic. They were pretty insistent, rifles in my stomach and all that sort of thing. And I learnt that, in fact, the embassy had been informed that we weren't coming. And that is why they weren't there at this particular point to greet us. Uh, they did turn up eventually, uh, but by that time, the Iraqis had sh sorted out the sheep from the goats and all the wives and children of our military training team, they were put to one side and they were then taken off on their way to becoming hostages. Um, I was able to take the diplomatic passported people to the embassy in Baghdad and uh, we were okay. You must have known that you'd be very valuable to the Iraqis as a hostage. I would have made an excellent hostage, indeed. Uh, I thought about this very <laughs> almost every minute of the day, really. I knew very well what the Iraqi uh, security people did to anybody in their um, clutches. Uh, it didn't happen to me. It might have done. We'll hear some more from Tony later in the series when we discuss exactly why he would have made an excellent hostage for the Iraqis. Saddam Hussein had now been holding his Flight 149 hostages for almost a month. He used his Iraqi state media as a propaganda machine, and he was determined to paint a picture that his guests were being well looked after, however far this was from the truth. He set up several TV appearances for his hostages, inviting the world's media along for the ride. Here's a clip from a staged press event with a brave question to Saddam from one of the human shields. Well, I'll ask you how you can use children as a pawn in something that they don't understand. Saddam, of course, was hyper aware of how he was perceived by the world. So this question of using children as pawns may have touched a nerve. 
it echoes some choice words from British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Saddam Hussein is now trying in his tactics to hide behind Western women and children and use them as human shields and use them as... Of course, we can't know for sure if this accusation that he was hiding behind women and children is what prompted his next move. But it does seem likely. Here's Margaret Hearn, one of the human shields. She was being held prisoner out in a remote desert location and had befriended one of the other hostages, Christine, also a passenger on BA-149. One of the guards came in and said, oh, come and listen to us on television. And Saddam Hussein um, was talking and the interpreter said, you know, in English, um, oh, um, it's a humanitarian gesture. Uh, women and the children who would like to leave will be allowed to leave. And so we, Chris and I, looked and that, and I said to her, is that us? Does he mean us? And he said, yes, yes. And I said, are you sure he means us? And he said, yes, yes. I said, even people who are out in the desert, like us, he means us. And he said, yes, yes, he means you. An astonishing move from Saddam Hussein that no one expected. But it was only the women and children who were being released. And while this was obviously great news for some, it meant that couples and families had an agonising decision ahead. And that night was awful, because although Chris and I were on our own travelling, so we were fine, we could leave, just about everybody else was either with a boyfriend or a husband, and they had big decisions to make. So most of the couples went off quietly to talk what they were going to do, and Chris and I went back, and we had kept a little bottle of beer for a celebration, if we ever had anything to celebrate, and we drank it in the room. It wasn't celebratory, really, because everybody else was really, really anxious, and it was horrible. And the most excruciatingly difficult conversations. They must have had, I mean, because obviously they would have wanted to leave, you know, the women, because we know what it was like. We know we kept getting moved from place to place. You're totally powerless. So it's very brave to choose to, to remain behind, you know. I don't know what I would have done had I been with a boyfriend. I, I have no idea what I would have done. I'm so glad. That was the first time I was glad I was travelling on my own. I, you know, I wouldn't have had to make that decision. Not that you should have, but you, you felt guilty that you were going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I felt euphoric because I was going to see my children again, but I felt awful for them because we knew where they were and we knew that it wasn't going to get much better there. And, yeah, yeah, there was, there was guilt. People gave me lots and lots of pieces of paper with phone numbers. Can you phone my mum and tell her this? Could you phone my brother? So I had all these pieces of paper that I had to do when I got back. The next day, we were told a bus was coming to take us. And so some people didn't come out of the room then when we were leaving. Some people did. Chris and I felt incredibly guilty. And we just got on the bus and sat quietly and, you know, because not many left. Over at the US Embassy, it looked as though Deborah might also have a chance of being released. I had been placed on a medical evacuation list because um, I took a medication for nocturnal seizures and I had run out of it. And because Preston was a minor, he was 17, and considered a dependent, he would be allowed to come home with me. 
So we heard Jesse Jackson was coming and he would be taking a group out of the embassy. Jesse Jackson was one of the many politicians who came to try and negotiate the hostages' release. Some were more successful than others. And some people didn't agree with the idea of negotiating at all. Anyway, back to Deborah. B. George approached the diplomatic court, asked them if I was going to be on this list since I had a medical evacuation, and they said yes, that I would be on it. And um, B. George and I talked, and we felt like I needed to leave uh, if I could and take Preston out of this situation and to go back home where I could help our, our other son. So we made the decision that if I could go, that that's what we would do. Just tell me about the moment of leaving the embassy and saying goodbye. Well, it was uh, very devastating. Um, As a a wife and mother, you're torn. But I I felt at that point that if I could leave and take our son, we couldn't send him without me. I I was the one that was being medically evacuated. And our son was... uh, quite large and mature looking for his age and in fact when I went through the gate and the Iraqi officials were looking at my passport and papers and everything they kept questioning me about Preston and the one of the men said he's not your son he's one of the marines I said no he's my son what did you say to George when you left that I hope to see you again and um after I got home and the shock of, of all this, I really didn't think that we would. I hoped that we would be able to recover his body. This is the secret history of Flight 149 with me, Stephen Davis. A common theme among the hostages was disbelief when they were told they were being released, probably an act of self-preservation to protect themselves from disappointment in case it didn't actually happen. I asked flight attendant Helen Peters how she felt when she heard the news. We kind of half believed it. Um, They told us we were going to be released on one day and then that never happened. And then they said we were going to be released again. And we just, you, you got to a point where you kind of didn't believe it was going to happen. I think about some of the previous hostages in situations when They've been held hostage for years and years, and some of them got out and some of them didn't. And you kind of felt that, hey, was this going to happen to us? Even right up until the time we got onto the aircraft, you were still very unsure if something was going to happen. It was just, we'd been told a few things along the way and nothing materialised. So it was just, yeah, okay, you know, we'll see. German teenager Gregor Schatz wasn't sure if it meant good news for him or not. My first thought was, well, I had seen from the bus some soldiers who looked to me to be no more than 14 years old. So I thought, well, at 17, I, I don't think I'm going to be counted as a, as a kid for, for, for here, you know. So then another day or two went by and then they said, OK, Gregor, yes, you're, you're going to be leaving. I was very sceptical, um, I, I still wasn't really sure, and I was also worried because I was, you know, we we're quite far from Baghdad, and now I'm going to have to get in the bus and leave the group behind and be alone. You know, there were no women within, in my group, so I, was the only, I would be traveling alone from the camp back to Baghdad, and I didn't really like that idea very much. 
I still picture in my mind how they all lined up at the fence uh, and waved goodbye to me, you know, and they'd all given me their phone numbers of relatives to contact if I get out and, um, and who to contact, who to call and so on. So then I got in the in this sort of a minibus and there was a driver who didn't speak any English and one of the other guys who did speak English. And not very far into the journey, he says to me, Gregor, I'm so sorry for everything that's happened to you. My family and I, we all, we hate Saddam Hussein and we are so sorry, but we can't do anything. We're so sorry for what's happened to you. And I said to him, I, I, I understand. I, I, and I did. I, I, I didn't hold him personally responsible. And I could see that there were probably many Iraqis who were totally against what was going on. But what power did they have to change it? For Margaret, her last couple of days in Iraq became tortuous, with delay after delay and constant doubts creeping in. No one quite knew what was happening. First of all, uh, we were going to get a bus to Jordan and from Jordan we are going to get flown home. Then it was, no, we're not going to get flown home. Richard Branson's coming for us. And then another rumour that it's only women with children that were being allowed to leave that day. So I was almost broken then because I thought, I can't do this anymore. You know, when you think you're getting there so near and then suddenly they're saying, no, no, it's only women with children. And I just had a crying, you know, in my room. I thought, I just can't... You're, you're so close to breaking up then because when they're dangling this, you know, in front of you and then eventually they call you down to the foyer again, read out your name, give you your passport back and then put you on a bus again. But this time you're not really convinced you're going to the airport. So this time, you know, when we finally turned into the airport, it was like a bit, OK, we're at the airport now. So there was always a little bit holding back. Don't get too excited. We've been here before. And it was just awful, really awful, because, you know, you can't get excited again, just in case it doesn't happen. Gregor was going through the same agony. It seemed like an eternity. I'd stopped eating at some point, pretty much, and uh, I got really sick, and I had to vomit so badly that I literally was paralyzed afterwards. And I only just managed to make it back to the bed. It took me like an hour to call the guard to, to call a doctor. And I, I was kind of scared because I, I, was, I really, I couldn't move. I was just, I don't know, maybe the, the nerves and anxiety, the not having enough food and, you know, and I, I was fairly slim anyway. I was pretty skinny by the, by the end of it. And I, I got through the night and I, I, and I think the next day, we actually did then end up going to the airport. I'm still skeptical because of everything which has been going on. The amount of times we've been you know, told things and they don't happen. Then they start boarding the plane. And I was like, oh my God, really? And, uh, and I was one of the first ones to, to be called up to, get, to go to the plane. I sat in the plane and I just felt this like, relief come over me and thinking oh my god it's really happening i'm really getting out i'm really getting out i'm like i couldn't believe it i was just i could feel the joy you know splurging up in me and just like feeling oh my god it's it's really gonna happen i sat there and i started feeling at some point how come nobody else is getting on the plane you know there were only a few of us had been let on and i probably was there for i don't know 10 minutes 15 minutes and then they called us off again and i was just crushed i was like no I, just, I was really, I just couldn't believe it. No, I just, I just didn't want to get out. I was just like, no, I'm holding on to this seat. I'm not getting out of this plane. I'm just staying on this bloody plane until you take off. 
And then finally, we got onto the plane, but again, it was an Iraqi aeroplane with an Iraqi crew. So, tiny little bit of doubt still, you know. Oh, and Jesse Jackson, that man, he comes back and he tries to make a speech at the front, you know. And people are shouting at him, sit down. And even ruder than that. Um, he stood at the front and he was going to make some sort of speech and say how wonderful it was that we're all going home, blah, blah, who knows. And he was delaying your he flight. He was delaying the flight. Remember, we were absolutely, you know, at high door. We were really anxious and nervous. Um, but anyway, he shouted down anyway and went back to his seat. So eventually we did take off. Bit of clapping when we took off, but nothing terrible because we didn't want, obviously, to make it, you know, that we're so happy to be leaving you. I asked Helen whether she believed she was really leaving. Now she was actually in the air. No. <laughs> no, no, no. You just thought, oh, my God, are they going to bomb us out of the air or something? It's, you know, that's just... No, it, in, until we touched down in Paris, you know, we we just didn't know. You just thought, oh, something going to happen. It's just you can't believe that you're actually, you know, after a month, you can't believe you're actually going home. Um, yeah, it was a very surreal moment and to touch down in Paris was just amazing. The French passengers got off and then there was a big bank of um, journalists taking their pictures they got off, you know, and I said to Chris, we must be news. Look at all all those journalists. I was almost tempted to get off at Orly thinking, well, if we got off here, at least we'll get home again. What if they change their mind? What if something happens? What if something has happened? And they turn around again, you know? Can they fly back? But I didn't. It held my nerve. And then finally, finally, we got back and landed at Heathrow. But then it was about five in the morning. So we went into the, um, the VIP lounge at Heathrow where I had a big gin and tonic at five in the morning and my husband, ex-husband, I was there and um, some, I don't know, dignitaries, whatever they are, uh, were waiting. Uh, the military people, they were whisked away straight away. We didn't see them again. They just disappeared. I asked Helen who was there to meet her at the airport. Yeah, I got to meet um, my my friends, actually, my colleagues, um, and my flatmate. Um, my family couldn't make it. Um, my, my father was in Canada, my brother was in France, so, you know, I had to wait until I could see them. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was just the amount of tears and, you know, hugging, and it was just amazing. Quico's family didn't actually know if he'd made it out or not. They had been told uh, that I might be on the flight, but they had no confirmation. So they turned up at the airport hoping. And my grandmother was there as well, the mother of my mother. She was looking very gaunt and pale. And obviously, like for many of the hostages, when they had no information, the family has, I think, suffered often as much as the hostages to some extent, because it's just awful not knowing what's going on with your loved ones. And what about Margaret? and her reunion with her kids. When I got home, there was a big banner up saying, welcome home, Margaret. And then eventually about seven-ish kids woke up and my little one, she wouldn't come to me at all. She just did not want to come to me. And in some ways, it obviously upsetting, but in other ways, it was a bit overwhelming anyway, having them 
felt quite quite funny about having them again because I needed time, I needed space, and the, the, you know the children climb on you. You know they're all keen to see you, but I did feel quite odd and strange. How did you deal with being home again? Did you struggle to adjust? I can't remember much about those first few days at all. I remember sitting in my garden and I remember crying in the garden because everything was so overwhelming. One of the things I have said about being there all the time is the feelings of powerlessness. There's no, there's no choices in anything. Food or clothes or... It sounds stupid, but we're so used to making these choices that it got so that somebody else was doing it for you all the time and I felt very overwhelmed by everything when we got back. Most of the women and children had made it out, but all the men from Flight 149 were still hostages with no prospect of release. George Saloum, who had now been separated from his wife and son, was one of the last men standing at the US Embassy. Oh, there were many moments that I felt like that I might not ever see my family again. It did not become a depressive situation. I had resigned myself to the fact that I was, said I was going to be in the American Embassy. I would stay there as long as it's necessary to protect the American interests there. Uh, of course, I, I would uh, concern about my wife and my family, but because of my religion and, and, and my faith, I knew that if I did my best, then whatever would happen would be the best way it would happen. I didn't want to have any regrets, and I knew that eventually, maybe not in this life, but in the life to come, I would be with my family again. Next time, on the secret history of Flight 149, we'll hear from some of the family members left behind. And that was when it started getting really hard because obviously on the news all the time it was just showing bombs, you know, and they're maiming at certain places and it was just surreal, wasn't it? And, you know, thinking my dad's in there somewhere, but not knowing where he was. We didn't know if, if that was it, that we would ever see him again. The Secret History of Flight 149 is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis. It's produced by Samantha Syke. Sound designers by Phil Brown. To get episodes without adverts, subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. This series is based on my book Operation Trojan Horse, which tells the full story of Flight 149 and my search for the truth. It's available now in print, ebook, and audiobook. The music we used is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If you want another podcast to listen to, why not try .com? It's a documentary series about the people of the internet, the communities behind our screens. Search for .com and subscribe now. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. <laughs>